Hebrews 10, uh, 26 through 35 this morning. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great, a great reward. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please join me, as uh, Mark has already said, please join me in the book of Leviticus. We're back in Leviticus. Uh, Leviticus 17 is our text for the day. You can find it on page 96 if you're using your pew Bibles in front of you. Uh, and I've got to say, I'm really excited about being back in our study of Leviticus together. It, it's a book that at once feels so far removed from our everyday experiences, and yet so relevant to our lives. And that's what we're going to see as we get into Leviticus 17 when we hear about holy worship. But before we get there, it's been a while, uh, so let's pause and remember where we've been. Let's, let's take a step back and reflect on everything we've heard thus far about Leviticus. Leviticus is not just a, a bunch of laws. Leviticus is all about God's grace. Ever since we were exiled from the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, we have been craving a way to get back into God's presence. And in his mercy and his grace, God has made a way for us. He's made a way for us to come back and enjoy his presence once more. And that way is atoning sacrifice. In our sin, what humanity needs, we need an atoning, ransoming, substitutionary sacrifice to cleanse us from our sins, remove our guilt, pay the price for everything that we have done wrong. And that's what we see as Leviticus opens. Now, the first several chapters of Leviticus covers five major sacrifices that enable God's people to enter into God's presence and to enjoy God's favor. It is a gorgeous picture of, of a worshiping community delighting in God. And then the, the next part of Leviticus teaches us how to make that delightful picture into a habitual routine in two words, 
clean and holy. Clean and holy. You may remember this picture from before. Leviticus talks about three ritual states, three levels of engagement with God. So if you were unclean, you were unable to approach God at the tabernacle. But if you were clean, then you could approach God at the tabernacle. And if you were holy, then you belonged to God. You belonged to God in in a special, intimate way. And that is the ultimate goal. And so half of Leviticus is aimed at making the people clean. Before Easter, we heard chapter after chapter of cleanliness laws, all of these different ways that a person might become unclean and what to do about it. And then these laws of cleanliness culminated in Leviticus chapter 16, the Day of Atonement, cleaning day, where all of the people's sins were forgiven and all of their uncleannesses were washed away. So as Leviticus 16 comes to a close... The people are clean. Now it's time to make them holy. And that's what the rest of this book is about. The rest of Leviticus is aimed at deepening the people's relationship with God so that they move ever more from cleanliness to holiness. That they ever more become his people, become holy in every sphere of life. And it all begins with worship. Our worship directly impacts our ability to commune with God and to conform our lives to his will. And so Leviticus chapter 17 confronts wayward worshipers and says, be holy. Be holy in your worship so that you can enjoy God's presence and so that you can enjoy God's favor. So with that in mind, let's hear God's holy word given to his people, and it's, it's clear that it is given to his people. We'll hear in the first few verses that God is speaking not just to the religious leaders, but to all the people, and it's a word for us today. Here's Leviticus chapter 17. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, speak to Aaron and his sons, and to all the people of Israel, and say to them, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded. If any one of the house of Israel kills an ox, or a lamb, or a goat in the camp, or kills it outside the camp, and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, Blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood, and that man shall be cut off from among his people. This is to the end that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices that they sacrifice in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord, to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. And the priest shall throw the blood on the altar of the Lord at the entrance of the tent of of meeting and burn the fat for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. 
So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. And you shall say to them, any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them, who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from his people. If any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you, given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, no person among you shall eat blood. Neither any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. Anyone also of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them who takes in hunting any beast or bird that may be eaten shall pour its, out its blood and cover it with earth. For the life of every creature is its blood. Its blood is its life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any creature. For the life of every creature is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. And every person who eats what dies of itself or what is torn by beasts, whether he is a native or a sojourner, shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Then he shall be clean. But if he does not wash them or bathe his flesh, he shall bear his iniquity. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Almighty Father, we humble ourselves before you to confess that these rules that command holy worship are oftentimes an affront to us. Again, we confess our divided hearts, our divided ears, our wayward practices, and we ask that you would, through your spirit, through your mercy, reclaim us for yourself. Speak to us now through this word, this ancient word that is so true. Speak to us. Let us hear your voice this morning so that everyone here would be caught up in the pleasures of God and caught up in your delight in your people and your grace and mercy to us in Jesus Christ. Speak, O Lord, for your people are listening. And pray in the name of Christ. Amen. So I think that you would agree... Uh, that on the surface, Leviticus chapter 17 feels very distant from our everyday lives, right? I mean, this passage was spoken to a nomadic people who were in the middle of the wilderness, who were herdsmen. They had uh, flocks of uh, oxen, lambs, goats, and these laws are addressing how they are to appropriately sacrifice those things and then how to appropriately deal with blood either from sacrifices or hunting. I don't know about you. I don't think this is an everyday experience. Uh, not for us, not for me personally. So again, these things feel very far from us. But like I said earlier, these culturally foreign laws address a very common spiritual ailment 
our penchant for DIY worship. In modern day America, we are constantly invited to create our worship practices for ourselves. DIY worship is everywhere. It is highly common to see people who dabble uh, and select from all sorts of various philosophies and religious traditions as if uh, all of these uh, great traditions of humanity are kind of like an a la carte buffet. Uh, Just sort of take what you want and ignore the rest of it. Tara Burton calls this a culture of religious remix. That's her term for a DIY culture, religious remix. And here's what she said. She says, today's remixed don't want to receive doctrine to assent automatically to a creed. They want to choose and more often than not purchase the spiritual path that feels more authentic, more meaningful to them. Does that sound familiar? I'm I'm sure it does, because we see it all around us, and if we're honest, we see that temptation in our own hearts as well. But this is not a new impulse in the hearts of humanity. As Leviticus chapter 17 shows us, the people of Israel were also drawn towards DIY worship, do-it-yourself Worship. Choose for yourself how you would like to worship the Lord because all of us share the same spiritual condition. We all have wayward hearts that disregard God. And so this passage exposes our wayward hearts and it exposes our wayward worship practices. First, wayward worshipers disregard the place of worship. Wayward worshipers disregard the place of worship. We hear that in verses 3 and 4. If anyone of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or kills it outside the camp and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. Now, there are two ways of reading those verses. Some people hear those verses and think that that God is saying that the people of Israel uh, cannot slaughter any domestic animals at all unless they were for peace offerings for God. Uh, So, in other words, there there were to be no slaughter of an ox or a sheep or a goat in the camp at all unless you were making a peace offering to the Lord. But I think a better way to read those verses is to to read it in line with verse 5. Verse 5 says, This is to the end that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices, that they sacrifice in the open field, that they may instead bring them to the Lord to sacrifice them not in the open field, but sacrifice them in front of the Lord at the house of God, this tent of meeting, the tabernacle. So the problem in this text is not that the people were slaughtering their animals for food. The problem is that the people were slaughtering their animals for sacrifices out in the wilderness, not at the tabernacle. So they were trying to go about their religious exercises wherever they wanted to. 
Instead of God's appointed place, wayward worshipers disregard the place of worship. Second, wayward worshipers disregard the cost of redemption. Wayward worshipers disregard the cost of redemption. Leviticus chapter 17 is preoccupied with how the people handle blood. And you probably heard that as we were reading the text together. The word blood appears at least a dozen times. And according to the passage, very clearly according to the passage, blood was for atonement and nothing else. That was the only use for blood. It was only for atonement. Verse 11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Also verse 14, for the life of every creature is its blood. Its blood is its life. So these verses are crystal clear. Blood represents life, and the heart of substitutionary, ransoming, atoning sacrifice is a life for a life. That's the logic of the tabernacle. An animal's blood for your blood. An animal's life for your life. And so God tells the people, whenever they kill an animal, treat the animal's blood with respect as a way of respecting the cost of atonement. So every time, every slaughter, they had to carefully drain out all of the blood and deal with it purposefully, either presenting it to the Lord at the altar as a sacrifice for atonement or covering it over with dirt as a way of of respect, almost like a way of symbolically burying the animal at that point in time. But from this passage, it seems like the people were in the habit of dealing with blood carelessly. We don't know exactly how, but we can kind of read between the lines. Maybe the people were not being careful and so they, they didn't drain out all the blood before they started butchering the animal after the, after the slaughter. Or maybe when they were hunting, they just poured the blood out on the ground and then walked away. Either way, whatever they were doing, wayward worshipers disregard the cost of redemption. And finally, wayward worshipers disregard the exclusivity of God. Wayward worshipers disregard the exclusivity of God. Why was God so concerned about the place of worship and the price of redemption? It's because when people disregarded those two things, they opened up the door for outright idolatry. Verse 7, it's shocking. It comes out of nowhere. Uh, God is telling all the ways that these people are supposed to sacrifice, and then he says, so they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons. So let's put all that in context. Okay, God, the Lord, has rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. He has brought them to himself to be his own special People. He has given them the tabernacle, the priests, the sacrifices. He has given them himself. And simultaneously, 
Even while all of this is going on, apparently the people were actively sacrificing to goat demons. Goat demons. Uh, Pagan deities that were depicted as having the heads of goats. And we're not exactly sure which goat demons God has in mind here when he indicts the people, but we can, with 100% confidence, say that these goat demons were either the leftovers of pagan worship in Egypt, or they were borrowed from the pagan worship of the surrounding nations. And so either influenced from their past pagan lives or influenced by the surrounding pagan cultures, these people were supplementing their worship with pagan rituals of their own instead of worshiping God alone. Now, why would they do that? Why on earth would they do that? I think it's because deep down they didn't fully trust God. That's why anybody supplements worship with something else, they didn't fully trust God. God said, I alone am God, and I will provide for you as my children. And the Israelites heard that, and then they said, that sounds great, but I'd like to increase my odds of success. I'd like to hedge my bets by also sacrificing to goat demons. And if that seems outlandish, it is. But it's also so familiar because our our circumstances have changed, but our hearts are exactly the same. We are tempted to disregard the place of worship. For us, God's designated place of worship is the gathered church. First Peter chapter 2 calls the church a spiritual house. Ephesians chapter 2 calls the church a holy temple. And Hebrews chapter 10, just the verse before uh, Elder Mark read our verses from Hebrews. Hebrews 10 says, uh, to not neglect meeting together as the church, as is the habit of some. In every day and age, it's incredibly easy to disregard God's chosen place of worship. For us, the wide availability of online worship services and sermon podcasts tempts us to believe that church membership doesn't matter as long as I'm listening to the right stuff on my own. Or we come to church, but we avoid committing and we avoid being known. And so the church becomes kind of merely a collection of individuals who happened to show up at the same time and the same place rather than a united body of believers who are worshiping the Lord together. All of these are ways that we are tempted to disregard the place of worship. We're also tempted to disregard the cost of redemption. Uh, for, For these people, the cost of redemption was the blood of an animal. So whenever they treated the blood of an animal carelessly, they cheapened the price of atonement. And for us, the cost of redemption was the blood of Christ. And whenever we treat sin carelessly, we cheapen the price of our atonement. 
We, we heard it already this morning. Hebrews 10 says that if you intentionally continue to walk in sin after you say that you trust in Jesus for your salvation, then you are profaning the blood of the covenant, the blood of Jesus Christ. It sounds terrible. But again, if we are honest, we are constantly tempted to do just that. We downplay the seriousness of sin. And we dabble with it in our own lives. We nurse our temptations. We think to ourselves, it's really no big deal, which completely disregards the cost of redemption. And we're tempted to disregard the exclusivity of God. Every one of us, we're tempted to disregard the exclusivity of God. God demands that we worship him alone. But you know this, John Calvin accurately describes us uh, and our hearts as idol factories. We have these restless hearts that are constantly on the lookout for rival gods that we can worship, other gods that we can kind of add to our pantheon of deities. We worship the Lord alone and we worship these other things. Pastor Tim Keller would always ask, what are the idols of your heart? And so today, I want to ask you, what are your goat demons? What what are your goat demons? And if that sounds absurd, let's just remember what the goat demon was. It was a leftover from a prior pagan way of life or borrowed from a current pagan surrounding culture. And we all have those. We all have those things in our life from our prior slavery to sin that we continue to cherish deep in our hearts. And we all have these things that we borrow from our secular culture in order to supplement our faith in Christ. God says, I alone am God, and I will provide for you as my children And we hear that and say, that sounds great, but I'd like to increase my odds of success, hedge my bets with work, or with possessions, or money, fitness, sports, or relationships. And that that might sound too theoretical. I know that we talk about these things an awful lot at church, and so maybe a story can help us unpack this idea there's a, a TV show out now called Beef. Um, in the show, one of the characters is an avid, passionate Christian. Uh, he faithfully goes to church. He's deeply spiritual. He talks about prayer, seems to have a passion for the Lord. He's even the leader of the worship team. Uh, and yet, as the story goes on, you find out that he is a deeply insecure fiercely jealous. He crumbles when his three-on-three basketball team loses in the church basketball tournament. He withers, just starts coming apart at the seams when someone else replaces him as the leader of the worship team, and eventually he gets involved in petty crime uh, just so that he can get a little bit of payback and a little bit of revenge. Theoretically, his hope was built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. But in those moments, 
we see that his hope was divided. He had a religious attachment to his athleticism or his musicality or his leadership. Even his displays of spirituality were used by him to kind of craft an identity for himself. Each of these ways is a subtle way of saying, I don't fully trust God. I need something else. I need to add something else. And he's not alone. It's what the Israelites were doing. It's what we do on a daily basis. We all have goat demons that we secretly cherish. And we're all tempted to disregard the exclusivity of God. And God warns us in this passage, the end result is death. Physical death, spiritual death. Verse 4 He has shed blood, and that man shall be cut off from among his people. Verse 9, that man shall be cut off from his people. Verse 10, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. Verse 14, whoever eats it shall be cut off. Verse 16, but if he does not wash them or bathe his flesh, he shall bear his iniquity. Wayward worship ends in ruin. Thankfully, there's a better way. God invites us to leave these destructive patterns behind and become faithful worshipers. God invites you and me this morning to be faithful worshipers. Hopefully, you are convinced as I am, that this text is not just simply about a proper method of animal slaughter, and it's not about merely a proper way to dispose an animal's blood. This text is about the heart. It's about our hearts. Last week, I was with a friend uh, who used to live up here, and one of the recurring points of conversation that we had was about the, uh, the state of driving in the DMV, uh, in particular, uh, every single, uh, each one of us had a number of stories about kind of the crazy things that we'd seen other drivers do in thick traffic. Uh, and I'm sure that you all have your own stories that you've seen cars do outrageous things on the road. And Sean summed it up perfectly. He said, the prevailing spirit of driving in DC is why can't I? Why can't I take a U-turn here? Why can't I park here? Why can't I pass you at really high speeds in thick traffic? Why can't I? A wayward heart asks God, why can't I? Why can't I worship wherever and however I want? But God wants to change our hearts. He doesn't want us to be wayward anymore. He wants us to stop asking that question. He wants us to want to worship him rightly. And so if you would like to become a faithful worshiper, here's how. There are two things that you need to do. This text shows us two things. First, take God's judgments seriously. Take God's judgments seriously. In our postmodern 
post-Christian, secular, individualistic society, these demands from the Lord seem petty and insignificant. We're tempted to say, who cares? But God cares. God cares about how we worship him. And unlike the, the kind of prevailing secular culture around that would say that this is just kind of a mythological text and it, it is, is not telling us the truth. God says there are real-world consequences that come from DIY, wayward worship. Verse 4, again, let's hear this. Uh, if the person does not bring the sacrifice uh, to the entrance of the, of the camp, of the tent, if he is not offering it as a gift to the Lord, then blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. Blood guilt shall be imputed to the person who improperly worships the Lord. If you were to offer a pagan sacrifice, misuse one of God's creatures in a pagan sacrifice in the wilderness, you incurred blood guilt. This is the exact same word that God uses elsewhere in the Old Testament to describe murder. Like in 2 Samuel 21.1, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. Here in our text, God says that, that the, the wayward practices of his people incurs blood guilt. Verse 16, people who refuse to practice proper cleanliness will bear their iniquity. Verses 4 and 9 and 10 and 14, people who continue to abuse God's system of worship will be cut off. At the least, that means that they'll be exiled from the camp. At most, that means they'll be put to death by God himself in this life, and then possibly they'll be cut off from God in the life to come. And verse 10 is, I think, the most haunting of all of these. If anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person. That's a, a tragedy. This is the exact opposite of, of what we want our deepest spiritual longing is to see God, to see God face to face as friends. And God says here that our sinful practices turn his face away from us. And it's not just true back then, it's true for us now. There is spiritual hardening, spiritual discipline, eschatological judgment awaiting all who spurn the Lord's commands. Why can't I worship wherever and however I want? It's because God judges sinful rebellion. But there's another much sweeter reason here in this passage if we have the eyes to see it. This passage invites us to take God's grace seriously. Take God's grace seriously. I know this passage feels like a ton of laws just saying, thou shalt not. It feels negative, but the outcome is profoundly positive. God is using these laws to throw open the doors to himself. Look at how God treats wayward, rebellious sinners. Verse 11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood 
and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. God wants to forgive. He graciously gives this sacrificial blood so that the people can have their sins removed. He wants to be gracious. God wants, he delights in purposefully, graciously, patiently pursuing us as his people. Cornelius Plantinga, the former uh, president of Calvin Seminary, recently wrote this prayer. It's one that I think it speaks to my own heart, my own hard-headedness. Here's what he wrote. Father of Jesus, as I know from my own case, you daily suffer fools who ignore you. You set good laws and limits for us, but we transgress or ignore them. But you do not abandon us. Uh, that's, the, that's the line of gold right there. But you do not abandon us even in our folly. And that's what we see here. These people were actively involved in demon worship. They were actively involved in spiritual infidelity, spiritual adultery, but God speaks to them and keeps inviting them back into his house. God says, stop sacrificing in the wilderness. Come sacrifice at the tabernacle. Stop feasting with these imaginary pagan deities. Come feast with me. Verses 5 and 6, this is to the end that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices, that they sacrifice in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord, to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. Peace offerings, that great festival feast of redemption. Verse 6, and the priest shall throw the blood on the altar of the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting and burn the fat for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. God is inviting a wayward people back into his presence. He wants them to experience his forgiveness. He wants them to experience his fellowship. And it's not just for native Israelites either. Verses 8 and 10 and 13 and 15 speak to and envision a multi-ethnic, multi-national worshiping community with God actively welcoming strangers and sojourners into his home for worship. Why can't I worship wherever and however I want? Because God is too kind for me to leave. When you behold God's gracious character, the question becomes, why would I worship anywhere else? This is the place. This is the only place. This is the only way to commune with God. And if it was true then, how much more is it true for us? Because God's generous and patient and welcoming grace And love reaches its crescendo at the cross of Christ. The Son of God, God's only Son, given for us as an atoning sacrifice, 
washing away our sins and our uncleanliness with his sacred blood, enabling us to live in God's presence forever. Why would we want anything else? God's grace motivates us to turn back, to forsake our wayward ways and faithfully worship God alone. That's the message of this text. With DIY worship, you only get judgment, but with faithful worship, you get God. You you get the Lord. And so let me invite you, become a faithful worshiper. Become a faithful worshiper. Take a look at your heart. Evaluate your life. How do you spend your time, or your money, or your affections, or your attention, and, and your energies? What do you care about, and how do you go about getting that? How do you, how do you engage this temptation towards DIY worship? Take a look at your heart. And then Consider God's judgment. He disciplines those who turn away from him, who disregard his ways. But then after you consider the judgment of God and God's discipline, consider his grace. He knows that we wander, but he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to ransom us with his blood and to win us for himself forever. And that is the invitation of a lifetime. It's the invitation to become God's own, to belong to God in a special, intimate way. It's an invitation to become holy. And in holiness starts with worship. Let's pray. Again, Lord, we confess our wayward ways, our doubting hearts, and self-centered tendencies. Uh, it's such a, a daily occurrence for us to say to you, why can't I? Um, but we thank you for your grace that constantly is not only disciplining us, but wooing us to yourself. So I pray now that all of us, through your spirit and through your word and through the message of the gospel, the saving grace of Jesus Christ, Lord, would you bring us to yourself, transform our hearts so that we no longer ask that question, but that we would delight to commune with you through Christ, and that would delight to commune with you through the ways that you ordain in your word. Bless us, O God, we pray with this united heart, so that we would wander no more and merely enjoy your presence. We pray that you would do all of this for our good and for your glory. In the strong name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.